Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Monday, July 19th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi Department of Health debuts guidance for the upcoming school year. Then Nancy and Zach New face fresh federal charges. Plus, the University of Mississippi moves towards universal vaccination among students and staff. And a reflection on the life of First Lady Elise Winter. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Late last week, the Department of Health rolled out new COVID-19 guidelines for primary and secondary schools. Dr. Paul Byers, who's the state epidemiologist, lays out what his office now recommends for students and teachers. It does fall in line with the CDC guidance. And first and foremost, you know, vaccination for all those eligible teachers and staff, anybody 12 and older. And that's really what's going to keep school in play. That. If you're fully vaccinated, you know you don't you don't have to wear a mask, you don't have to get tested, you don't have to do quarantine if you're exposed. But that brings me to the next piece, which is we are going to, through our public health guidance, any individual who is unvaccinated indoors in the school setting should be wearing a mask at all times. So we, we want to make sure that that's clear, because I know that there's been a lot of misunderstanding, and I've heard a lot of stuff that says, you don't have to wear a mask in school. Well, if you're vaccinated. If you're fully vaccinated, we're not recommending that you wear a mask. But if you're unvaccinated, for those individuals who are not fully vaccinated, our guidance does say they should be wearing a mask indoors in that K-12 setting. The guidance comes at the start of the back-to-school season and amidst a growing outbreak of COVID-19 within Mississippi. On Friday alone, the state recorded more than 500 new cases of the disease, virtually all of them believed to be a result of the notorious Delta variant. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs reminds us why that variant in particular presents a threat. It's important to sort of just lay out why is Delta variant a problem? And it's very simple. Number one, it's twice as contagious as the COVID we saw a year ago. What does that mean? It means that you can't get effective herd immunity, quote unquote, with this minimal number of vaccinated and in no prior cases. It just doesn't work. Number two, if you've had COVID before, your immune response to Delta is not very good. So it's, it's quite plausible and a lot more likely that you'll get COVID from Delta, even if you've had COVID before. And then number three, we're just under vaccinated. The anti-science people will find anything they can say that, you know, it's, it's, you get vaccinated, you get COVID, why get vaccinated? 95% of our cases are in the unvaccinated people. 93% of our deaths are unvaccinated. That means 93% of our deaths are preventable. 
The greatest percentage of eligible but unvaccinated Mississippians falls between the ages of 12 and 17. Dobbs and Byers say it's imperative for parents to encourage their children to get the shot. If you want your kids to not have to stay home from quarantine, because I got a lot of earache about that last time, so-and-so is going to stand camp because, band practice because she was, had lunch with Susie or whatever. I mean, we can't let outbreaks go un, unimpeded. But the immunization bit, the vaccination bit, keeps your kids from having to be uh, isolated or quarantined. It's it's a freedom, and it, it, that's where your free, people are wanting their freedom back. Get vaccinated, you get your freedom. I mean, yeah. you, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to keep doing this this sort of back and forth about coming up with different guidance for for each situation, and each time we roll out, and each time we get to a mass gathering, as long as our vaccination rates are this low. And if we've got the solution in front of us. If, if we could get those folks vaccinated, maybe this will be keeping kids playing football. Maybe that'll be the, the, the step that gets us a little bit more people vaccinated. About one third of Mississippians are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Coming up, new charges against Nancy and Zach New. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Not long ago, Nancy New and her son Zach were respected as leaders within Mississippi's special education system. The News operated a network of private schools that offered individualized instruction for children with learning disabilities. Their model utilized state grants to partially fund programs. Governors Phil Bryant and Tate Reeves praised their work as emblematic of the success of Mississippi school choice initiatives. Now, the news are disgraced and their schools are near collapse. Such a downfall comes after allegations that the pair billed millions of dollars to the Department of Education as reimbursement for the salaries of teachers they never hired and the tuition of students they never enrolled. Nancy and Zach New currently face a number of state charges stemming from that alleged fraud. And an updated federal indictment arrived just last week. Julia James has followed the case as part of the investigative team at Mississippi Today. She helps us make sense of all that's transpired. The federal charges are one count of conspiring to commit wire fraud, eight counts of wire fraud, nine counts of identity theft, one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering, and one count each of money transactions with unlawfully acquired funds. And what does that all mean? What are they accused of doing? So essentially, they were applying for and getting a lot of special education scholarships from the Mississippi Department of Education, reimbursements for primarily disability scholarships and dyslexia scholarships for the schools that they were running in Jackson, in Hattiesburg, and in Greenwood, Um, New Summit, North New Summit, and South New Summit. All of those schools kind of specialize in providing services to students with disabilities, and the state provides reimbursements to private schools that do that work. Um, But the news were were, uh, filing for reimbursements for students who were no longer enrolled in the school, for teacher salaries that were no longer working there, and 
claiming that teachers had more training and skills than they had. How have they pleaded in the federal case? Currently, they are pleading not guilty and are out on bail. Now, the federal government has just issued, uh, or grand jury has just issued, uh, a new indictment. What does that involve that's on top of or instead of the previous charges? So the new indictment is primarily just some modifications to the earlier indictment that came out in March. There's four additional counts of identity theft included in the new indictment. Originally it was five, now it's nine. And it also has increased the total amount of money they believe the news to have conspired to commit wire fraud with from $2 million to $4 million, money that they improperly acquired. Those are the two biggest elements. There's one or two other small changes in terms of including that staff at other schools, not just the primary location in Jackson, were also being billed for salary reimbursement, so they didn't actually need. But primarily, it's the four additional counts of identity theft and the increase in fraudulently obtained funds from $2 million to $4 million. Is it unlikely that the state would file charges against the news that would mirror the federal charges? So the reason why these are federal charges is that the wire fraud actually crossed state lines. The state contracts with another agency that was not in Mississippi to distribute all of those funds from MDE. And so those wire fraud transactions were actually crossing state lines. So there would be no state charges in that instance? At this time, I think it's unlikely, but it's technically possible for some of the other charges. The wire fraud charges are undoubtedly mm-hmm. um, federal because of that bit about state li- crossing sure. state lines. But um, some of the others could with conspiracy could maybe, but at this time, I think it's unlikely. Because again, you wonder about the oversight of, in this case, the Mississippi Department of Education. The Department of Education has said that they are intending to increase their standards and methods for verifying all of the claims that they are submitted, that they're billing. But I don't think we've seen much more evidence and what exactly that is just yet. What is the status of the schools that Nancy knew either oversaw or was involved with? So those schools are in a somewhat precarious position right now. The schools in Greenwood and in Oxford have laid off all of their teachers, signaling that they're likely going to close because they don't have the funds to continue to operate. The school in Hattiesburg was actually purchased by the grandparent of one of the current students, and now they've turned it into a nonprofit organization are trying to keep that school open. It's been renamed Innova Prep, but trying to keep those services being provided in their community. And the school in Jackson was, I was reporting on this uh, in May when it first happened, was initially uh, a group of parents has formed a corporate conservatorship to try and manage the remaining funds and keep the school open, but it's seeming unlikely at this time that the New Summit campus in Jackson will be operational next year. Well, there's certainly plenty of us to follow with the state charges and the federal charges. We've been speaking with Julia James. She's a reporter with Mississippi Today. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you.
Coming up, the University of Mississippi Medical Center eyes universal vaccinations within its campus. Then, a longtime friend shares his memories of Elise Winter. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Right now, no hospital in Mississippi requires its workforce to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. But yesterday, the University of Mississippi Medical Center rolled out regulations that it hopes will soon prompt near-universal vaccine uptake among students and staff. Administrator Dr. Luann Woodward explains. The medical center has felt a responsibility and an obligation as the only academic medical center in the state, the place that takes care of the sickest patients, whether we are talking about tiny, tiny, tiny newborn babies or older adults, immunocompromised patients, whatever the case may be, trauma patients, we take care of the sickest patients in the state and we are proud of that. That is a responsibility that we hold dear and that we take very seriously. From the beginning of this pandemic, we have pledged to all of you, to our employees, to the patients, to the citizens of Mississippi, that we would bring all of our resources to bear and that we would take that leadership role and try to set the example for others in healthcare across the state. So, as you have heard, Yesterday, we made an announcement about a new policy. So the new policy, now going into effect, will require all employees, all students, to either be vaccinated or to wear an N95 mask. So any member of the UMMC community who doesn't get the vaccine will be required to wear the medical-grade face mask whenever they're at work or school. And Dr. Ellen Jones, who led the medical center's COVID response, makes clear that vaccinated people won't be subject to anywhere near those same restrictions. We believe that the effectiveness of the vaccine, the data behind it, is so strong that we can confidently allow vaccinated individuals in non-clinical areas to go maskless. Similar to what you're seeing in the community with CDC recommendations. So vaccinated, fully vaccinated employees in non-clinical areas will be allowed to go maskless. Unvaccinated individuals will be required to wear an N95 mask at all times. All of our employees that work in clinical settings, direct patient care settings, will still be required to wear a mask. Some will have on N95s, some will have on a mask of choice, such as a surgical face mask. Jones also emphasizes the, the policy is engineered to remain as aggressive as possible in anticipation of further federal guidance. In the policy, we created a provision for several things. The first is that if a booster shot becomes recommended by the FDA, that will be required to be fully vaccinated and continue to not have to wear the N95 mask. If and when the emergency authorization use is lifted 
and the FDA authorizes full authorization for the vaccine, it will then become a condition of employment or enrollment in one of our schools. The new policy will be rolled out over the course of several months and is expected to be fully in effect come November. Coming up, a longtime friend of Elise Winter reflects on the First Lady's life. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Elise Winter died Saturday. Miss Winter was the former First Lady of Mississippi, wife to Governor William Winter. During their time in the governor's mansion from 1980 to 1984, William and Elise worked as a team to execute major policy goals. That included the Education Reform Act of 1982, which expanded access to early learning in the state. David Cruz served as media director for Governor Winter's campaign and administration. During that time, he became a close friend of the first family. David speaks with MPB's Rob Lane. I first came to know them when I wrote Governor, well, then Lieutenant Governor Winter, a, a letter when I was when I was in college, and uh, I'd, I'd won a, a research grant. I'd won it by writing a proposal that probably wasn't very practical, and so I wrote on an old manual typewriter. I wrote Lieutenant Governor Winter a letter and asked if I could come down and spend a couple of weeks in his office and and uh, learn from him. He was the most erudite and, and historically oriented person in Mississippi government and politics. And, and astonishingly, he wrote me back and said, come on down. And so I did. And and then after the two weeks, he wouldn't let me leave. So I spent the rest of the summer. And he, he and this winter invited me into their home because I, I was living in a little hovel for a dollar a night at the old YMCA in Jackson. And uh, he, he invited me into their home. So I spent the rest of the summer in their home. And we became very, very fast friends. And as a result, Ms. Winter really became a second mother to me. And so I'm extraordinarily fond of of her. My understanding is she played a not insignificant role in the governor's political career and some of the major policy goals that he achieved. Can you speak to that? Well, Ms. Winter was a really special woman. She was a driven force of nature, you know, on the campaign trail, helping Governor Winter win elections. And goodness knows there were a lot of campaigns I can even remember her hand being terribly bruised from shaking so many hands out on the campaign trail. But, you know, she was equally relentless uh, and driven in in the battle for education reform, for kindergartens, compulsory school attendance, and other much-needed education reforms that that were finally passed as part of Governor Winter's 1982 Education Reform Act. But, you know, on a personal level, kind of simultaneous to all that driven nature uh, that she had in in her personality. She was simultaneously a very kind, generous, loving woman, especially when it came to friends, family, parchment inmates, helping the working poor through Habitat for Humanity and, and, and similar endeavors. Yeah, you mentioned Parchment, and you mentioned that on the campaign trail she'd come home with bruised hands. I remember reading a 
kind of a, a, a touching moment in an interview she did a few years ago about walking through parchment and shaking people's hands through prison bars. And that struck me as characteristic of a certain kind of person. What can you tell me about her, her work at that prison and her involvement with the people there? It just came out of a, a deep a religious faith, a, a deep concern for people who were down and out, and just that loving, caring, uh, sweet, generous person that she was. She was always reaching out to others, and especially those who were down on their luck, like parchment inmates, like the working poor who couldn't afford a house without the uh, the support that ha- that Habitat for Humanity uh, provided. And she was a driving, relentless force behind Habitat for Humanity. The role of the First Lady is such an interesting one because it's an office that's really defined by the person who occupies it, and so much of the First Lady's work is defined by what each individual First Lady takes an interest in and feels passionately about. How did she understand her office as First Lady? As First Lady, she was just all in. She was just fully engaged. She wasn't a staffer. I was a staffer, um, but she sat in on so many staff meetings. She was someone who was fully engaged in the Education Reform Act um, because she saw that as something that was valuable for the children of Mississippi and ultimately for for economic development in in our state. The thing about her as First Lady, she was fully engaged. She she handled all the kind of typical traditional First Lady duties, but she also took on big responsibilities speaking all over the state on behalf of the Education Reform Act, spending time at Parchman, and bending over backwards to do anything she could to to improve the state. How will her work and her legacy live on in the Mississippi that you see today and the Mississippi that that we all share? Gosh, that that may be over my, that that may be such an overarching question. It's over my pay grade, but except to say that that's the kind of person Ms. Winter is the kind of person we need involved in public life, and she was definitely involved in public life. But you see, after she left public life. What she did with Habitat for Humanity and what she did taking care of of prisoners uh, who were no longer her her responsibility, reaching out to them on a very human level. And that's the kind of person you want who's both, you know, good in public life, but realizes that, hey, I can do great deeds outside of public life. David Cruz speaking about First Lady Elise Winter. Thank you so much, David. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I I miss her dearly. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.